This is Pastor Mike Fabares with Focal Point Ministries. I trust that the following recorded sermon will be a benefit and a challenge to your walk with Christ. For more information about Focal Point Ministries, log on to focalpointradio.org or call us toll-free at 888-320-5885. Well, I often recite the story of my evangelistic experience in the barber's chair, which when my former haircutter was confronted with the God of the Bible, like most, said, well... That's not the kind of God I want to worship. To which I replied, and I hope you do too, when you're hit with that comeback, that's the only God there is. We're here on uh, Thursday nights this fall to study the God who is. Not the God that our sinful desires would prefer, but the God that is. The God who has revealed himself in the only book he ever wrote a unique book attested to uniquely, which, by the way, is going to be our 13-week topic next fall, if we're all still around next fall. We're going to look at that, and that'll be here before you know it. Why is the Scripture the unique, attested, written, codified, propositional revelation of God and His communicative man? We'll get into that later. But if that is true, which we certainly your teacher, affirms that it is, then we must go to that book to uncover and learn and affirm in our hearts the God who is. And if he's not quite to our liking as sinful, fallen, finite creatures, well, I trust that our clear understanding of Scripture will prevail and our desires will be set somewhere in the back of our minds because... Certainly when it comes to the topic tonight, there is no other place in the study of theology proper that is going to test our resolve to adhere to the God of the Scripture than this topic as our desires and our heart bombards us with a, with a hope that God is something other than what the Bible reveals Him to be. A God who coexists with uh, unspeakable evil and unimaginable suffering. A God that somehow lives with this paradox of being a holy and perfect, all-powerful being and yet uh, seemingly uncaring about the, the pain and the corruption and the suffering, the immorality in the world. It's a uh, paramount question. It's the question, really, for many people. It is um, a paramount question not just for theologians and Christians, it's a... Uh, Paramount question for philosophers. You don't have to be a theist to deal with this problem. I mean, you can be a chemist or a biologist, a doctor, a lawyer, a husband, a wife, a parent. You're still going to have to deal with the uh, seeming conundrum of an idea of perfection and good, but never, ever seeing it or experiencing it in the world. And for us Christians, it's even worse because we schedule times to sing and worship a holy and perfect God, and then we go all week long to live in a sinful, corrupt, fallen, painful world. So we need to make something of this paradox and try and find biblical insight on it. So tonight, let us define the problem of evil as it so often 
put the problem of evil. Here's the uh, presumption about this when it comes to the problem of evil, and I think I printed that much for you on your worksheet, but it needs to be stated on your worksheet something like this, and all these elements need to be a part of how you reason through the problem. If God is all-knowing, if he really knows everything, and he's all-powerful, and he's all-good, all you need is those three affirmations about the definition of deity, which most people, if they're going to define a God, God looks something like that. If he's all-knowing, all-powerful, and all-good, then there should be no evil. There should be no bad, no suffering, no corruption in his creation. That is the problem. And you can see where each one of those becomes important. I could see that there'd be evil in the world if he didn't know about it. Well, then we couldn't say, well, God's coexisting with that, or at least he's ignorant of it, but if he's all-knowing, then that's a problem. We could maybe cut him some slack, just like you cut yourself slack. There's evil in the world, and you don't stop it all, but you say, well, I can't stop it all. I don't, I don't have the power to stop it. So you let yourself off the hook, but you don't really let God off the hook because he's all-powerful, and if he's all-powerful, he could stop it. Or maybe he's not all good. That's all we're left with, right? Maybe somehow he finds some perverse pleasure in the evil or the suffering in the world. This is the problem. Which, by the way, I trust you know that a, our lecture isn't going to uh, probably satisfactorily solve all your questions about this. So I put a reading list where we normally put a passage on the weekend and a little inset box, the text box there, on your worksheet. Now, I listed those as best I could from, these are just some of my favorites, from uh, simple reads uh, to more difficult or challenging reads. And if that's not satisfactory, or you look at all those, I've read all those, maybe you've read all those, Um, (laughs) maybe maybe not, but uh, go to the last one on the list, and I brought this one for you, the last one. Um, This is uh, an annotated bibliography on the problem of evil called the theodicy. This is nothing but 400, almost 500 pages. Uh, And by the way, it only lists books from 1960 to 1991. They don't have a later version of this out yet. Of books on the problem of evil. And so uh, if if you want uh, to go a little deeper than your pastor's lecture, you might want to find a book there on that list and dig a little deeper. But this is the problem we're going to to deal with. And before we get started on looking at the biblical affirmations, let's pray together and ask that God would help us think through this as we ought. Pray with me, please. God, help us tonight, please, to think clearly and to be willing to think biblically about the problem of evil. And I know this week really goes hand in hand with next week Because eventually we get around to thinking about how can you plan a universe that has this in it. And so, God, we look forward to a study of the decrees of God and the sovereignty of God. But for now, help us to grapple at least with phase one, the biblical parameters of thinking about suffering and evil in the present world and how a good, all-knowing, all-powerful, all-good God can, can coexist with such a thing. And God, if our hearts and our flesh somehow grates against some of the answers that we find in the Scripture, I pray that you would help us to yield and concede 
to what you have revealed about yourself because one day when we stand in your presence, and I trust even now with regenerate hearts, we anticipate that our mind will be completely changed to be like Christ so that we can leave behind childish thinking and we can think on matters of God, your character, your nature, why you do what you do on a whole other level. Not that we'll ever think your thoughts exactly, but God, help us to anticipate thinking your thoughts after you much more accurately and much more clearly then than we do now. So God, allow us not to be uh, snobs about our present knowledge of who you are and help us to recognize there's room for growth and one day there will be uh, understanding, mature understanding as we enter into the presence of the perfect God, the only God who is. So help us tonight in this study, I pray, as we look at the biblical data and think logically through some of the argument here that is presented in Scripture. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. You understand the question, right? Let's look at some of the biblical parameters. Three things that we can say that the Bible affirms, and these may sound elementary to you, but there are facets of uh, people claiming to be Christians or Bible scholars that deny all of these. So let's just affirm them and recognize that there are in Scripture, we won't even take time to turn here because I trust if you're a part of a church like ours or you are a part of this church, this doesn't need a proof text. But there are evil beings. The Bible is all about affirming that reality, be they physical or biologically encased or spiritual, uh, demonic beings, satanic, uh, a satanic being. Uh, we, we can affirm that there are evil beings. Bible also affirms that there are evil behaviors. We don't get three chapters into the Bible before we get a description of behavior that provokes the justice of God and the sentence of death. So clearly there are evil behaviors and they go in scripture from bad to worse. By the time we get to the middle theocracy of the judges, we have uh, horrific sinful activity taking place even among God's people. Thirdly, Uh, We can state, as though it needs to be stated for us as sentient beings, we would hardly need this, but it is clearly stated in Scripture that there are painful realities. From the third chapter of the Scripture, we have that. These are realities, they're real, they exist. Now, if you grew up a Christian scientist or you read Mary Baker Eddy, uh, that's just one popular facet of those who claim to be followers of Christ and students of the Bible that say it's really not real, it's all an illusion. So... uh, Any former Christian scientists here among us? Yes, it's all just an illusion. Uh, No, that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible also affirms when it comes to the reality of setting kind of the stage for, for answering this question that God does indeed know about all evil. He sees the evil and the good. There's not a rape that takes place. There's not a murder that takes place. There's not rebellion in any corner of the planet. There's not a terrorist act. There's not a bad, evil plan that God does not see. He sees it and knows it all. You hardly need proof texts on that. God is an omniscient God, and we spend a a night, at least one-third of a night, talking about that attribute of God. He knows it. He doesn't just know what is good. He knows what is evil. Secondly, God could, and it's good to put this parenthetically in your Bibles, and will put an end to evil, all evil. All evil will, will cease. There will be no more rebellion. There will be no more murders, no more rapes, no more extortion, no more bullying on the playground. There will be no sin at some point in the future. That is the promise and the hope of the scriptural and redemptive story. 
in the Bible, the prophetic story from our perspective. Lastly, it's important and probably most controversial as we get down to it, and we'll unpack this in various ways tonight, that God will accomplish, and this will get into next week too, so if you're not fully satisfied, next week we're going to answer the rest of this, but God will accomplish his good purpose, and he'll do it with evil beings, right? That should be plural, and evil deeds. His will will be accomplished with evil beings and with evil deeds. This, by the way, at any one point, whether it's process theology or uh, the evolving God or Rabbi Kushner, you know, there's several attacks upon these simple affirmations. But I trust we don't need much time to affirm that. You believe God is omniscient, you believe God is omnipotent, and you believe that God is good and will eventually wrap up human history with a good purpose being accomplished, having worked everything after the counsel of his will. More on that next week. Some preliminary observations before we try to tackle this deeply. Let's deal with the word, first of all. Theos and diki. Theos and diki. Uh, and I always, I, I talked backstage about this you know, as a teacher, you want to make things as understandable as possible. And I know sometimes you think that can't possibly be his goal. But it is my goal to make things as, as understandable as, as I possibly can. And sometimes, uh, like I've often said, not just with my humor, but sometimes with the way I present things, one day you'll thank me if you know all the things I didn't present or the ways I didn't present them. But when it comes to this, as I debated whether even to use this word, I uh, was fully convinced that we should uh, make it a part of our Christian vocabulary. There are times to ditch words that don't really communicate anymore, but this is a word I think that we need to, uh, uh, to, to recover, to salvage from an antiquated word pile, and to utilize it. It's a compound word, theos and diki. Theos, of course, is God, theology. Uh, we get the word theology from theos. And diki is the Greek word justice. And I have put here for you Webster's definition. If you look it up in a dictionary, it will read something like this. Theodicy. Why do we call this whole question and problem theodicy? Because uh, we are vindicating, at least that's the attempt of theologians or Bible students, God's justice. And all justice means is that God is right in doing something. His righteousness, his goodness, that he does right. We are vindicating God's justice in allowing the existence of evil. That's not a religious definition. That's the dictionary's definition of theodicy. Theodicy. Now, I used the title, and again, as I was deciding how to use this or what should I use this, I, I googled the word uh, and just to see what was out there. There's over a half a million hits. If you plug in the word theodicy, uh, you'll have a, a half a million hits. And I know you think you can get a half a million hits on anything in Google, but that's not true. Type my name in, you won't get that many. Uh, Type your name and you probably won't get that many. Half a million hits on the word theodicy. People are using it. It's a, it's a point of discussion. It's discussed by atheists. It's discussed by theologians. It's discussed by philosophers. We need uh, to know it. And then books. I, I typed it into uh, Amazon.com. Uh, and I returned this, just the one word, 9,068 books. So almost 10,000 books that are headed under the topic theodicy. So I want to, if you're an informed, an informed Christian, to use this word in our 
in our discussion. Whenever we talk about the problem of evil and suffering, uh, we're talking about the theodicy, trying to solve the problem that everyone has to solve, particularly those who want to affirm that God is all-knowing, all-powerful, and all-good. A couple other preliminaries. So we got the word. Any questions on the word? We got the word. We understand the word. Great. Let's talk about what evil is for just a minute. Evil is a description. It is a description of the absence of good. And that's a good place for us to start. And I know this is just a uh, kind of a logical observation. But in the scripture, it is, presented, uh, it is presented to us this way as well. As a absence of something. And all you have to do is take your concordance out or in your Bible program, type in the analogy or, or, or the metaphor of light and darkness. Uh, this is a predominant theme. And it's a wonderful description of how evil and sin is understood philosophically or theologically in Scripture. Let me give you one example. Turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1. The biblical light and dark metaphors are helpful. If sin is, now remember this definition, it's probably the first one we learned as kids. If sin is falling short of the glory of God, then holiness would be attaining to the glory of God. It would be living up to the holiness or the glory or the perfection of God. Now, when something doesn't, it it, it leaves a void. It is something else. It falls short. It is behavior that doesn't live up. And the light and darkness metaphor helps us in this regard. Look at verse number 5, 1 John chapter 1. This is the message we've heard from him and declare to you. God is light. Right? Now, he's not photons, right? He's not, you know, the sun. He's not a fusion ball burning in, in space. This is a metaphor. This is a picture. And in him, there is no darkness at all. Now, think of the concept of sin falling short. There is no lack. There is no deficiency. He is perfect. He is light. In him, there's no darkness at all. Now, if we claim to have fellowship with him, and yet we walk in darkness walk. They don't, the Bible doesn't care about your gait, right? It doesn't care about how you walk. Ooh, look how cool you are. This is another analogy. It's a common one in the New Testament, how you live. If you live, he says, in darkness, if the manner of your life, the, 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 the perpetual or chronic way in which you live, life, in, live your life is always lacking, right? If it's, if it's always reflecting the absence of the holiness of God, then we lie and, and we don't live by the truth, Now, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another. That's good, right? When we're holy and we do right things. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. That helps us to know we're not speaking of absolutes here, right? If I'm walking in the light and sinning, that means that obviously I'm not light like God is who has no darkness at all. He's got no lack. I'm going to have lack in every chapter of my process of sanctification, But in him, no darkness. But as I walk in a pattern of increasing chronic righteousness, then it shows that I am in connection with God and he purifies me from all sin. Now, if we claim to be without sin, we need the clarification here, I suppose. Verse 8, then we deceive ourselves and the truth's not in us. We're not like God perfectly, can't be, right? If we confess our sins, though he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. The concept of biblical light and darkness, that metaphor, that analogy... It's helpful in seeing that evil is not a thing, right? You don't create it. Do you see where we're going here? 
You can't create this. This is a description of something that doesn't live up to something else. So that's what we're talking about. Evil or sin. It is the falling short. It is the absence of good. God is good. Number three. And we just read that there in verse number five. God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. And by good, here's what I mean. This is important. God cannot commit a sinful act. He cannot do something that doesn't live up to his perfect standard. God is is perfect. Here's a passage for you worth jotting down. Deuteronomy 32 verse 4. Deuteronomy 32 verse 4, which we have quoted in this series so far, that God is our rock. His works are perfect. His ways are always just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just as he. That's the picture of holiness in the Bible. He does what is right. He cannot commit a sinful act. Not only that, he can't be tempted by evil or sin, and he can't tempt with sin or evil. Now, here's the... uh, Right, cannot commit a sinful act. Great. Number four. God uses sinful acts for his good purpose. Now, here's the controversial part, and, um, and let's deal with this just a little bit. Just at least to show you that you're familiar with this principle, um, I suppose we should turn there uh, because of the NIV's translation. Genesis 50, last chapter in the book of Genesis. Because um, most of us grew up on a different translation. Uh, the NIV, unfortunately, I guess fortunately, unfortunately, it's contextually helpful and accurate, but it leaves us uh, maybe a bit cold as it relates to the principle that we're trying to underscore right now. So I'll at least give you the Hebrew word here. You can write it in the margin and then you'll know that's what this is. Drop down to verse 20. You know the context, right? Joseph's been thrown in a hole, sold by his brothers, not real popular. Well, he's given his arrogant dreams to his brothers and that didn't work out very well. Bottom line is, you know he ends up delivering his people by being elevated to a place in a position of power, but it was a really bad way to get there, it seems, at least from Joseph's perspective, uh, that he now is able to house the Jewish people through the famines and the difficulties. They become enslaved. They end up having to be redeemed by God through Moses later. But the bottom line is they find their way to a place of plenty and prosperity in Egypt and Joseph summarizes all of this to his brothers in verse number 20. Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. Are you with me on this? Here's his commentary on this. You intended to harm me. In the margin, put R-A apostrophe A-H. Ra'ah, ra'ah. That's the Hebrew word. Look it up in a, in a, in a lexicon, in, your, in the back of your word study Bible. It is the word for evil. Ra is the root in Hebrew for evil. Something bad. It's sinister. It's wicked. It's not good. It doesn't live up to God's standard. You intended evil to me, and that's harm. That's a decent translation, and it fits the context. But God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So God took your jealousy, your envy, your anger toward me. All I did was tell you my dream, which God gave me about the promotion of my life over yours, and you sold me into slavery, and, I, you, know, and you lied to Dad about me being dead. That was bad. It was evil. It was raw. It was not good. 
But in that bad act that you did, God intended it for good. And then the plan of God being sovereign, which is next week, all-knowing, right? All good. He could have stopped it. And when he was suffering for those ten chapters in the book of Genesis, he could have said, God, why? Well, he gets the answer at the end of his life. You did this for good. Ultimately, you used evil for good. That's the principle that we're trying to establish that God uses sinful acts for his good purpose. Genesis 50, verse 20. Let me take you to another one. Acts chapter 2. Let's start in verse 22 and read through verse 39, or at least we'll hasten through the highlights of this section. Acts chapter 2. Peter is preaching. At the beginning of the church, all these people gathered, all these different languages, all these different backgrounds. Scythians, Parthians, Medes are all there. And he's preaching the message of the gospel. Now, they all have some Jewish background. Of course, they're there for the day of Pentecost, traveling, pilgrimaging to Jerusalem. And he says, men of Israel, Acts 2.22. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, signs, and wonders, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. Much more on this next week. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to a Roman execution rack, a cross. Now, the question is, is it good to take a righteous, innocent man, accuse him of evil, and nail him to a Roman execution rack? Raw, right? Raw, that's bad. Or kakos in Greek. That's evil. It's not good. That's really bad. And yet, the Bible says, verse 23, more on this, the profundity of this, in God's set purpose and foreknowledge, God handed him over to you, wicked men, to put him to death. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Now drop down to verse 36. Here's the good that comes from this. Therefore, let all of Israel be assured of this, that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Authenticated now, attested to by the resurrection. He is unattested and without any equivocation or doubt, Lord and Messiah, Christ. People heard this. They were cut to the heart and they said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children. Now remember the you here was wicked men nailing Christ to a cross. And for all who were far off, all for all whom the Lord will call. What do you get from this? Forgiveness of sins, gift of the Holy Spirit, for you, your children, and those who are far off. And you were the wicked people who nailed him to the cross and you spit on his face and you had your Roman soldiers beat him up. That is God's intention of using evil and wicked in the most profound and seemingly unjust way to bring justice, according to the book of Romans. Matter of fact, let's look at that passage. Romans chapter 8. I think I threw that one up here. Romans chapter 8. To bring about justice through an unjust act. Or in the words of Joseph, right? people meant it for evil, but in God's plan, it was meant for good. So something overarching, more on this next week, in God's plan that utilizes evil for something good. And that's God's intention. 
Now, again, I know we're a part of this evil fallen world and we want God to have a plan that doesn't include suffering and evil. Sorry, when you're God and have your own universe, you can do it however you'd like. But God, we're not Mormons, I'm not saying you will be, but God has chosen to do this and using secondary causes, individuals who do evil and wicked and ultimately accomplishing what is good. Now, get context here in Romans 8, 18. I consider the present sufferings, now that's the reality for the Christians that Paul is writing to in Rome, are not worthy, right, to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us. Now, just that's there for context. Now, drop down 10 verses later to verse number 28. And we know that in all things, now the all things that's on their mind contextually and in their lives is they have sufferings right now. He works for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. Now drop down to verse 35. Where does he end this discussion? With the same thing about present sufferings. Who's going to separate us from the love of Christ? There's something good in all of this that is going to overarch God's ultimate goal. But for now, trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, etc. Or like sheep given over to the slaughter. It's a lot of bad in your life. But the point is that God is going to work all of that present suffering and all the bad, even though you feel like a sheep that is given over to slaughter, for good. That's a principle that you're familiar with, but you need to think of it theologically when we address the question of evil and suffering in the world. We can make an overarching statement that the evil and suffering of the world is going to be used in God's plan for ultimate good. It's not good when it happens. It is truly raw or kakos. It's truly bad, but the bad ends up working right into God's hand for good. Let's talk more specifically now. We're going to get dive into the specifics. The evil of moral agents. A few observations here. Number one, letter A, all moral agents were good at creation. You don't need to turn to that one, do you? Genesis chapter 1, verse 31 is the final statement of creation, God's commentary. I'll read it for you. God saw all that he had made, and it was not only good. He said now, the last time he affirms it, he says, it was very good. Okay? And there was morning and evening the sixth day. Thus, verse 1 of chapter 2, the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. The seventh day God finished his work that he had been doing, and on the seventh day he rested from all his work, as Exodus says, for an example, for our pattern of work and rest. But the point is that everything was good including Adam and Eve. Everything God made was good. That's an important observation before we go any further. Number two, letter B. Moral agents chose to sin. <laughs> wow. So insightful, Pastor Mike. I know. But let's think about this. There is, and we'll define this next week, a conundrum, a, this is worse than a paradox, two wills at work, okay? One is contingent on the other, but God is working a plan and we are making decisions. God's plan ends up accomplishing all he wants to accomplish. Our decisions, though, are real decisions for which we are held responsible, 
for which the men in Acts chapter 2 were going to be punished for unless they repented of their sins. You nail them to the cross, you wicked men, you're going to be punished by God. The point, though, is that God is giving people, and certainly in in the book of Genesis, that's the way it's depicted to us, uh, Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, a choice. And by choice, the best word for that, the phrase, two words, is moral agency. They're, They're moral agents. They can make choices that are good or fall short of what is good. They can do the right thing or they can fall short of the right thing. Now, of course, there are two categories of moral agents. Some that God made without a physical reality, they are called angels, and some that he created to be encased in biological cases, and those are humans. Both of them experienced the same reality. They They were given choice, and the choice that they made either was to adhere to the holy standard or to do something less than that. In the garden, it's very clear. God took the man, put him in the garden, told him to take care of it, and he commanded him, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden. You have freedom here to eat whatever you'd like, to make a choice, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you do, there's going to be consequences. The point is that the very first thing God does after he sets him up in the garden is he gives him an opportunity to exercise his volition, his choice. Same thing happened in the celestial or the spirit realm. And you can put these two passages down if you'd like. Uh, Isaiah chapter 14 and Ezekiel chapter 28. Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 are the clear Old Testament pictures, the clearest I should say, that we have of the same thing going on in heaven with the angelic beings. And they are going to choose to adhere to the holy standard or to fall short of the glory of God. And the decisions are made in Isaiah 14. Perhaps it's the clearest. You've got this great privileged position, but you've chosen instead to lift your heart up, to ascend to heaven, raise your throne above the stars of God, to sit in the mount of assembly, and you said you would ascend to the tops of the cloud. You'll make yourself like the Most High, but how you've fallen, verse 12 says, and you'll be brought down, and there'll be consequences. And the Bible says that a number of angelic beings made the same decision that the head honcho made and chose to fall short of good. Moral agents chose to sin. If you want to write that one down, I just read from Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 through 15. Here's what God did not do. When he empowered agents made in his image to exercise volitional decision-making power, unlike trees and rocks and unlike animals, the decisions they made were moral. They were moral agents. God said, okay, when you fall short, We'll get to what he did, but here's what he did not do. He did not force compliance to holiness. And however you want to envision this, and this is all theoretical, obviously, but as decisions were about to be made, whether it was the star of the dawn, as he's called, commonly known as Lucifer in the King James Version, uh, who chooses Satan the dragon to fall short of the glory, not, do what, not stay within the parameters that God gave him, or Adam and Eve, Eve 
initially to reach out and transgress the standard of God. God did not somehow get involved in that and prevent the decision. He did not stop that. And we can only theorize about that, but it would make sense that if there is genuine volitional power or moral agency, that you can't prevent that, theoretically, or you wouldn't prevent that, or you would violate, or here's the word I use, nullify the, the moral agency. You can't have real moral agency if you can't choose to fall short of the moral standard. And that was the choice and the empowerment, or what we often call, at least in you know, kind of the popular discussions, the hazard of free will. It is falling short of the glory of God and God allowing that process to live itself out, keeping the integrity of moral agency intact and not nullifying the moral agency of human beings or angelic beings. He did not force compliance to holiness. Secondly, he did not sentence and immediately execute judgment. And that may be a bit confusing in the verbiage of Genesis chapter 3, but it is clear because there was a Genesis chapter 4. <laughs> and that is, he sentenced them, but he did not carry out the judgment. In other words, he said, in the day you eat of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. Now that process began. The sentence was given, but the ultimate execution of that judgment was not carried out. Had it been carried out, okay, here's the thing. You got a good God, all-knowing, all-powerful, all good, has now rebellion in his creation. He could either stop that rebellion and nullify free agency or moral agency, or he could take that rebellion and immediately extract it, therefore maintaining a holy universe. That would be the picture of hell, cast away from the, from the majesty, the presence and holiness of God into something else no longer in the presence and the benefits of God. He didn't do that. Had he done that, I guess he could have started over, whatever, but we wouldn't have Adam and Eve sitting around describing or lamenting or experiencing any of the unholiness of reality in Genesis chapter 4 through Revelation chapter 22. Wouldn't have that. But we do have that because God chose something different. Here was what, and we're going to add the word good because it is what God chose to do. And in many ways, it's important for us to allow God's definitions to define what is good. If God is the ultimate volitional being, then what he chooses is good, whether you like it or not, or whether it meets your you know, college professor, your philosophy professor's definition of good. This is the good plan of God. The good plan of God is to provide moral agency, to actually commit something or an act or make a decision that falls short of holiness and then not immediately carry out the judgment against that, which would be to eradicate the rebellion from his universe. What that leaves us with is a God who, let's put it this way, aspect number one, postpones judgment. In other words, you're sentenced. You are now someone who is a sinner. And in your sinful state, you now fall short of the glory and the perfection of God. But I'm not going to judge you right now. I will postpone your judgment. That's the reality that we see in Scripture. Let me turn you to Romans chapter 3. This is one of several. We could go to Acts 17. And there are several other descriptions of this. But this is 
perhaps helpful because of the word, which I think is another good biblical word we should hang on to in Romans chapter 3, verse number 25. Let's start in verse 22. Did I put that up there? And by the way, we'll call this a grace period. A grace period. Right? Grace period. What's a grace period? Grace period is you're signed a contract, supposed to pay your rent by the second of every month. You didn't do it. Well, we're not going to do anything until the 15th. So you got 13 days grace period. And that means you're guilty, but there's no punishment. Grace period. Romans chapter 3, verses 22 through 25. This righteousness from God, we've been in this passage a lot on the weekends, right? Comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Jews, Gentiles, doesn't matter. And are justified, made right freely by his grace. Can't earn it. Through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Now God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement. Right? He was the satisfaction of God's justice. He punished sin in him. Through faith in his blood as we trust him. We get the credit of that. Now look at this. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance, there's the biblical word that's worth retaining, at least the English translation of it, in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. Had God brought immediate punishment for every sin, we wouldn't have the problem of evil. Evil would be solved because he'd eradicate every sinner immediately. But God... In his forbearance. That's the picture. That one word is the reason we have a problem of evil. Because God has chosen to forbear or to show patience, forbearance, or grace towards sin. And he left all that sin unpunished, but he demonstrates his justice now on the cross. I'm going to show you that I'm serious about sin and I'm going to punish it. But until that time, we saw no sign from God that he was going to punish sin, at least not in the dramatic way of God's wrath being poured out on somebody. Verse 25, he did this, middle of verse 25, to demonstrate his justice, Christ on the cross was punished, because in his forbearance he'd left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. We see that phraseology often, that picture at least, the, the verbal picture of God saying, I'm, I'm not going to punish right away. Therefore, by the way, you now have a coexistence of a God who through his choice to forbear, he has necessarily to coexist with evil because he's not punishing right away because he is into a grace period, which by the way, we say is a better plan than not having one and a better plan than forcing compliance. We're saying that's better. We're saying it because God said it's better because that's what God did and God only does what's best. See what I'm saying? I know... We'd like to say, God, we want a universe where there is no sin. But God says this is the best plan, to have a grace period. Secondly, he will then, in this grace period, initiate a plan of redemption. And redemption is, though you're guilty, I'm going to make you innocent again. I hope you can immediately see, as recipients of the benefits of redemption, that that's a good thing. That's better than not having redemption. It is the plan of grace. Okay? First thing we get is a grace period. The next thing we see, which, by the way, shows up in some kind of some symbol-laden form in Genesis 3, we have pictures of his redemption. Right there in the very beginning of his reaction to sin, he starts talking about a redemptive plan. As though he 
had this thing all figured out before it started. Plan of grace. One example of this, Ephesians chapter 1, which by the way, the whole Bible is the unfolding of this redemptive plan of grace. But let's look at it in Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, God's plan begins to unfold, culminates in the new covenant to bring sinners into a reconciled state with a holy God. Sinners that should be expunged from the universe, should be cast out and expelled from any benefit of a holy God, a good God. They're sinners. They fall short. They use their free moral agency to do wrong. And instead, God's going to say, I'm going to fix it. Watch me fix it. I'm going to initiate a redemptive plan. And oftentimes, the doxologies, the praise statements of the new covenant, they, they focus on this very thing, the plan of grace. Verse 3, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing. When, if we understand the backdrop of moral agency falling short of God's glory and the justice of God needing to punish us for that sin, that's an amazing thing. That's called grace. That we're blessed instead of punished. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world. I'm playing way too many cards for next week ahead of time, but we'll look at this passage again next week. He did this. He figured this out. He planned it. He did it ahead of time. And he chose us in him before creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Now, wait a minute. He knew we were going to be sinful. And for us, as David said, born into sin. But he planned and chose to make us holy and blameless in his sight. Not in practice, but in his sight, ultimately, permanently in the new kingdom. In love, verse 5, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with with his pleasure and will. Now here's the key phrase, and I want you to underline this in verse 6. To the praise of his glorious, what's the word? Grace. Here's the point. I am going to give a grace period, which necessarily means I'll have to coexist with evil and suffering. But I'm going to start a plan that will bring a select few out of that and give them what they don't deserve so that they can praise in this state as my sons right? And my will, my glorious grace. An attribute, a picture, a side of God, which becomes the focal point of the new covenant that we would not see or ever experience or ever worship or ever praise were it not for the bad of sin and rebellion. And that sin and rebellion becomes the plan of God to initiate the praise of something good as trophies of his grace, which by the way, We won't boast about it because the glory is going to go to God. He has freely given us in the one that he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of, here's the theme, God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And that gets back to the plan in verse 4. He planned this thing out. God gives us a grace period as moral agents who fall short of the glory of God. He initiates a plan of redemption, which is going to highlight something good and give us something we wouldn't have otherwise had, a plan of grace. And then, once his plan of redemption is complete, he will then remove evil, the Bible says. In other words, the very thing everybody wants right now, God says, I will do. You want a world without evil? I'm going to give you a world without evil. But I'm going to do two things. 
that are going to result in some better and greater good from God's perspective. Perhaps not yours, but I think maybe we can warm up to the concept. I'm going to give a grace period and initiate a redemptive plan of grace. And in the end, we're all going to look back, and here's how I put it, we are going to celebrate that grace as fallen creatures who receive the reconciliation through the redemptive plan of God. Pictures of that, or here's the way we can put it. Salvation against the backdrop of judgment. In other words, some people want to know, and we'll get into this next week, how can people end up in hell? That wouldn't make sense. A good God couldn't do that. To celebrate his grace is to celebrate participation in the salvation against the backdrop of judgment that people just like you and just like me get what they deserve and we get plucked out and don't get what we deserve and we celebrate his grace. See, that's the picture. And the picture of God's plan, which, by the way, this is a homework assignment, I suppose. Ah, let's look at this one. I thought I put down the whole chapter. But Revelation chapter 21, verses 4 through 6. I know we read this often, but the picture here in light of the context of what we're talking about, I hope gives us the, what I want to say, the, the supra perspective of God. We're in the middle of this nasty period in God's redemptive history. And by that I mean we're surrounded by sin and corruption and pain and suffering and disease and cancer and, 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 and criminals and immorality. I get it. But from God's perspective, it's a very small parenthetical section of his plan in which he provides a grace period to sinners, initiates a plan of redemption, completes that plan, and then removes evil. Here's the statement, two chapters in the Bible, at least from the New Covenant, of him describing the removal of evil. Verse 4, let's start there. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. The people now who live among God because God now lives among them. There will be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. Those are all the things that bother philosophers. For the old order of things has passed away. Now he who is seated on the throne says, I'm making everything new. It's not going to be like it was before for you guys. right? It's like it was for him before, but not like us. And he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. This is where this appellation of God makes so much sense. I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the beginning and the end. I live in a state of moral perfection. I allow a grace period to initiate a plan of grace. Now you get to celebrate grace, but evil is now removed. This little parenthetical period, little I know, it's been thousands of years. But from God's perspective, this little parenthetical section called a grace period that he's giving to morally failed moral agents, he says, it's going to be done. I'm the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost. Again, there's the picture of grace from the spring of the water of life. God's good plan. Now, that doesn't solve the problem. There's another problem that is thorny. And as I interacted with my philosophy professor at the University of Arizona on this topic at length, happened to be the author of our textbook as well, he pointed me to this section of his textbook that he wrote. He was a philosopher, and he said this is the real crux of the problem. So I put the quote on the screen for you to help you think through um, (laughs) that the philosopher that I dialogued with on this topic conceded what we've discussed so far. Right? Here is a non-Christian, agnostic, 
philosopher conceded everything so far that we've just now articulated for the half the last half hour here's what he says can you read that people are surely responsible for much of the suffering inflicted on other people okay this is the quote right from his textbook but nevertheless there is much for which they do not seem to be responsible okay to see this let us differentiate what has been called moral evil from what now is called natural evil Moral evil consists of all the evil in the world, which is the causal result of those morally responsible agents. Okay? Natural evil includes all the other evil that there may be, which is an overstatement from a naturalistic perspective. More on that later. Okay? Thus, although the massive suffering of the Holocaust is surely a moral evil, fine, we'll give you that, the SS, the Nazis, all that, great. That's moral evil. He says... The also immense suffering resulting from such natural disasters as earthquakes, flood, and he lists a long list of them, and the like, are not the causal result of any moral agent in the world. So he thinks. There are natural evils. Evils for which there is no human being responsible. And as a naturalist, that's all he can see, and that's all he takes into his equations. But still, I mean, we're getting where we're going with this. Let us then grant that much evil is moral evil, Okay? And that God is not responsible for this, which is a big concession, by the way. He's just cleared God. As a non, he was a non-Christian, agnostic philosopher. Just cleared God. He's already accomplished most of the theodicy in his own thinking. He's not responsible. Fine. But this only means that the problem of evil can be redefined as the problem of natural evil. He's conceded the whole first half of the game. Okay? A problem no easier to solve. And I love that line in the textbook because my response is, but you just solved it for us in the last three chapters of the book, right? (laughs) You catch that irony? You solved the problem of moral evil. Now you're saying, well, natural evil is just as hard. And then he gets to the conclusion in his book, says, I can't solve it. So his conclusion as an agnostic is the preponderance of evidence is there is no God. Which, by the way, whether it's not... As eloquently stated, this is where most people are who don't want to believe in God. The number one reason is the suffering and evil in the world. So, he is basically teeing this up for us, and that is the real crux of the problem for him and most honest philosophers is natural evil. Great. I'm glad they brought that up. Let's talk about that. Letter B. Here's how the Bible, the only book God ever wrote, explains natural evil. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Genesis chapter 3. Let's just look at God's explanation for natural evil natural evil genesis chapter three you know the context they had just sinned they took the 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 fruit they shouldn't have eaten and he says to adam which by the way already spoke to eve and the news wasn't good for her but he says to adam because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which i commanded you you must not eat right you fell short of the moral standard as a moral agent i let you do that And what you did was something short of holiness. Therefore, you should be expunged from the universe, but I'm not going to do it. Instead, I'm going to give you a grace period, and I'm going to initiate a plan, a redemptive plan of grace, so that you can celebrate grace one day. But for now, underline this, cursed is the ground because of you. The Bible explains natural evil as something, number one, imposed by God. Not because he's some capricious evil, bad deity, but because he's a just deity, 
that during the grace period, he will inflict what I like to call phase one of God's just punishment on sin. He said, in the day you eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. Now, that came in two phases. Really, three phases. The first phase was the world's going to be cursed. Woman, your body's going to be cursed. And men, the ground is going to be cursed. And our bodies are too. Uh, but we don't have kids, so we're out of that little dilemma. The bottom line is, God is not an angry God, a mean God. He's a just God. Phase one was corruption in the world. Phase two was biological death. Phase three was the second death. But the Bible says that natural evil was inflicted by God as phase one of his penal, just response to sin. Right? He's a just God. Okay. Imposed by God. Genesis chapter 3, verse 17. And by the way, he gives some explanation of it, and it's going to be much more extensive, as Dr. Lehrer puts it in his book. Uh, Through painful toil, you eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles. Right? You'll eat of the plants of the field. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, that's right. And, and, and you will eat of the plants of the field. Your thorns and thistles for you. It's not going to be easy. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat food until you return to the ground. For since from, from it you were taken, dust you are, dust you are going to return. Okay? Now, let's use some sanctified rationale and logic here to talk about why this would be. Well, as I just put it, it's phase one of God's punishment. It is what they deserve, only a lot less than what they deserve, but it's something of what, it's a taste of what they deserve for rebelling against God. They should be expunged from the universe and cast into outer darkness, but instead, for now, instead of suffering the complete absence of God's grace, I'm going to throw some thorns into God's grace, and you will suffer on the planet because of sin. It is my just response to sin. And I know we love to think God loves us and we're cute and cuddly and we're like a teddy bear on his bed and there's no reason for him to want to cause any pain in our lives. But the bottom line is every time there's pain and suffering and sickness and illness and your kid throws up and the doctor says you're ill, right? And you have pains and broken bones. All of that is the outworking of God's promise of phase one of the punishment for mankind's sin. It is exactly what he designed. And it was a response, not because he's mean, but because he's just. Secondly, I think this is not a stretch, though I call this sanctified rationale. It is not a stretch to say it is clearly a reminder of the problem. And this is worth showing you at least my logic on this. Go, if you would, once you jot that down, to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. We were already there, but let's go back to that passage. Go up a little earlier in Romans chapter 8. Actually, we'll read the section we didn't didn't read. We'll start in the same verse, verse 18. Romans chapter 8, verse 18. I consider, Paul says, that our present sufferings, not worthy to be compared with the glory that's going to be revealed in us. It'll be good. God's going to remove evil, but for now, sufferings are there. But listen, it's nothing compared to the good that's coming. The creation, it waits in, in, in eager expectation The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. It's waiting for that day for evil to be removed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. Now, who did that? God did. God messed up the planet. Why? Because sinners had messed up 
perfection on the planet. Moral agents had become immoral, and God then said, I'm going to, through my will, my choice, my decision, my just response to sin, I'm going to inflict and subjugate the natural world to frustration, as it's put here. But here's the two words that give us great relief in hope. Won't always be that way. This is a grace period, and then a redemptive plan of grace, and then we'll celebrate grace. That the creation itself, verse 21, will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. Not everyone, but the children of God, these trophies of his grace. Verse 22. We know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. And the two words I want you to underline in verse 22 are, we know. And, And that means we look around and we know the world's screwed up, right? Can I use that phrase? It's Wednesday night, not Sunday morning. It's messed up. And we look at the world, we see the world, we watch our bodies, we look at nature, we see the hurricanes, we see the, the, the volcanoes, the tornadoes, the twisters, the earthquakes, all that. It's messed up. We know that. It's all groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. The world's not in good shape. I know Al Gore wants to save it, right? But it's in really bad shape. And it's not something the will of the American Green Movement is going to fix, you realize. Now, I'm not for throwing junk in the ocean, but I am saying, I should never have started this line with you, Orange (laughs) County liberals, but listen to me. Listen. The point is, God's will subjected the world to corruption. It is God's will, and, and it's His plan, right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly, As we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our, there's another unredeemed part, our bodies. For in this hope we're saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. For who hopes what he already has? For if we hope for what we do not have, yet have, we wait patiently for it. The point is, and I guess you could add not only our problem and our need, but our hope, right? That's what sin in in the natural world leads us to. Every time you see the footage of the Katrina disaster or you see when the earthquake hits on the San Andreas Fault and we're all going, oh, the world, it's awful. Or the next tornado hits in the Midwest or there's a typhoon somewhere. You need to realize those are reminders of sin, right? That's phase one of God's punishment. It is a reminder of our need, right? The world is groaning. It's subjected to frustration. It is also a, 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 a call to hope that one day the world won't do that kind of stuff because the old world will be replaced with a new one. Now, third, this is a little harder um, for some to buy, but this is my sanctified reason. I believe, based on examples like Genesis chapter 11, that the fallen natural evil of the world is 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 a thoughtful intentional limitation on mankind which by the way with accumulated knowledge and technology we're busting our way through which is if you read some books on this with the multiplication of technology we're pressing up against what fallen the fallen world and natural evil holds us back from doing and i say genesis 11 you sunday school grads know what genesis 11 is all about the tower of babel what did god do there and why Think that through. Confuse languages so that they could no longer cooperate because if they could fully cooperate, then they could, nothing going to stop these guys. What was that all about? What do you mean, nothing going to stop these guys? What kind of father is that? Don't you want the best for your kids? Right? Think about the logic of that. 
Don't you want them to soar and fly? You don't want to put limitations on your gift. But God wants to put limitations on people. Why? Because they're sinful. See the picture here? And they can't, you know, sinful. Here's the thing. We, in the, go in the nurseries and you'll see rounded corners, soft little toys. What you won't see is knives, nunchucks, guns, shotguns, hand grenades. We don't have those in the nursery, right? Some of you have those tucked away in your garage. But we don't have those in the nursery. Because the more immature someone is, the more potential harm and danger can come with their use of powerful weapons. See, we don't do that. We want to limit our kids in their immaturity with what they have. We don't let nine-year-olds drive, right? Some of you don't think we should have let 16-year-olds drive. <laughs> Amen. But, <laughs> but when we were 16, we, we wanted 13-year-olds to drive. Listen, well, when we were 13, we wanted 13-year-olds to drive. What's the point? God shows a pattern of limiting people because sinful people with powerful tools do amazingly destructive things. And that's the problem with accumulated knowledge and multiplied technology today. That's frightening, right? Right? We don't want, you know, uh, these certain countries to have these certain weapons because that would be catastrophic. The point is that natural evil limits the ability of mankind to function in the world. It keeps imperfect people from perfect tools. Let's put it that way. I had that in my notes. I should have read it earlier. It keeps imperfect people from perfect tools. And earth now is not a perfect tool. What was the whole point of mankind? To go manipulate, govern the world, subdue it. Now we're trying to subdue an imperfect thing. And that limits us. Now that sanctified rationale, that's one step removed from any chapter and verse, but It's my thinking, at least, on one of the reasons it seems in keeping with God's pattern in Scripture, why natural evil exists. All right, let's bring it in a little closer, the the evil we encounter every day. Now, Dr. Lehrer might not like my explanation for natural evil, but it is the biblical answer for natural evil. Moral evil, we dealt with that. So those are the first two. Let's just write these down. We don't need any explanation for these. But you encounter evil and I encounter evil every day because people make evil choices. Human moral agents keep on choosing to do less than holiness. And that messes up our world and it inflicts suffering into our world. Secondly, we've already covered this, there is corruption in the natural world, which was a just phase one punishment of moral agents choosing to do less than holiness. Those things cause a whole lot of the suffering and pain in the world. When the doctor says you got cancer, when you got pain in your knees, when you get a migraine headache, see what I'm saying? When someone uh, is mean to you, when somebody cuts you off, flips you off on the freeway, whatever it is, chews you out, cusses you out, whatever you're, boy, this world's imperfect. This is a painful place to live. Most of it, bad marriages, bad kids, whatever it is, one or two here on the list. Most of them fall into one of two of those categories. But there's more. There is, according to scripture, Dr. Lair would not admit this, but an evil intent of spiritual moral agents. We said there were two classes of God's creative work. Spirit beings encased in biological bodies and spirit beings without bodies. Spirit beings without bodies have moral agency and there's a whole group of them, myriads of them, who have chosen to exercise moral agency in something not only less than holiness, but something antithetical to holiness. They are evil spirits. That's what the Bible calls them, evil spirits. 
and they inflict evil in the world. The Bible says that. A couple passages for you. You don't need to turn there, but you know this one by heart, I'm sure. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12 would be the verse to write down. Let me read you some context. Put on the full armor of God. Why? So that you can take your stand against the volcanoes and hurricanes in the world. No. So that you can deal with all those cantankerous people at church. No. Put on the full armor of God that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Verse 12. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Well, it is a lot of time. But it's against rulers and authorities and powers of this dark world and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. The point is, the Bible says, you got a whole other class. That if you're not buying the revelation of God, the only book God ever wrote, then you're not going to buy this. But the Bible says, there's a whole spiritual class of beings that want to do harm to the world and harm to people. Particularly people who claim the name of Christ. Here's another passage to jot down. I'll read this one for you too. Revelation chapter 2, verse 10. Revelation chapter 2, verse 10. In Revelation chapter 2, we've got... Jesus writing these postcards to these seven churches, and they were key churches along the Roman roads there, the the roads in Asia Minor. And in verse number 10, this is to Smyrna, to the church at Smyrna. Here's what he he writes. Well, first, to get a little little, uh, context, verse 9 says, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you're rich. (laughs) It didn't feel that way, but it's much like Romans 8. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews, but they're not. They are of the synagogue of Satan. Here's the interaction of evil intent of spiritual beings interfacing with human beings. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. This won't be good. This is not a postcard you want from Christ. Wow, bad days are coming. I tell you that the devil will put some of you in prison. Check that out. And will test you. And you will suffer persecution for 10 days. But be faithful even to the point of death. And I will give you the crown of life. Now, some death is, the, um, is just the outworking of Genesis chapter 3, right? You're in a biological unit that's decaying. Some death is initiated by evil spiritual beings. That's what the Bible teaches. Therefore, there's a lot of evil in the world that has spiritual, volitional agents, moral agents, pressing antithetically against the holiness of God. That's a lot of the explanation of evil in the world. Fourthly, divine cause and effect. The Bible is very clear that God has situated within the design of his creation that if you, here's, I'll just put it in in the terms of Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. Jot that down. Galatians 6, 7 and 8. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. That means this is a God plan, a God equation. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his flesh will from the flesh reap destruction. But the one who sows to the Spirit, to please the Spirit, he's going to reap eternal life. The point is, God has ensured that there is this quid pro quo, this this for that relationship between doing things that displease him and built-in responses from God to cause people pain. That's what God says. Therefore, there are people suffering today Not because of the natural course of things from Genesis 3. Not because of hurricanes or volcanoes. Not because of Satan. But because they're doing things that God doesn't like. And he has built into the equation of the universe a quid pro quo where they're going to suffer and hurt and experience pain. Because of their choices. This is a moral world. 
with moral consequences built into the fabric of the universe. That's what the Bible teaches, divine cause and effect. Fifthly, Christian discipline. If you are a Christian, though, Orange County parents, you may not believe in spanking. (laughs) I I love to overuse this line because I know I preach on this all the time and people still don't believe in the shebet to the buttocks, right? Is that right, George? Is that how you say it? The shebet. That's the, thing, that's the little stick. Uh, the, the rod, they call it the shepherd's rod. His staff was a big stick. The rod was a little stick. Right? And they would apply the pain to the child for disobedient actions, which may have nothing to do with sowing and reaping. There's no causal effect in any natural explainable realm. But it's God intervening in ways you would never expect to spank and inflict pain in the lives of his children. Hebrews 12. You can just jot that down. Just start in verse 12 and read five verses. That passage explains it clear and more uh, thoroughly than any other text in the New Testament that we are going to... Wow, did I say 12? 6 through 12. Thank you. Um, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 6 through 12. Uh, He is going to inflict pain in our lives as we sin, just like we should inflict pain on our children's lives when they sin. That's a different sermon, and I know you don't like that message, but it's true. Different time. We'll tackle that one another night. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6, simply says, God scourges, right? He disciplines those he loves, and he scourges. That's, that's the picture of a shebet against a, a, a child's body, right? Against his butt. He punishes, spanks every son he accepts. So endure hardship. God's treating you as sons. No discipline, verse 11 says, seems pleasant at the time. It seems painful. But later, it produces a harvest of righteousness. What's the point? There was suffering. I bet Jonah felt really, really cruddy in the belly of that big fish. Don't you think? This is awful in here. How can God have a world filled with with stomach acid that I would bathe around in? This is awful. What's the point? God was responding in discipline to his prophet, causing pain. Very unlikely. This wasn't cause and effect, right? He wasn't a guy who liked to swim in deep waters and, you know, wear, uh, you know, raw fish meat on his back. It's not cause and effect. It was totally unexpected discipline. All right. Most mysterious of all, F. The promotion of God's glory. And this could be very complicated. But some examples. We've got a whole book on this example. His name was Job, right? There's a good example. All of that done to promote the glory of God. And it involved the death of his kids and boils on his skin as he scraped the pus off of his body with broken pieces of pot, right? He would have to think, wow, how can God be good in such a painful world as this? Well, it wasn't just... uh, his bad moral choices. It wasn't that someone did that to him. It wasn't corruption in the natural world. It wasn't uh, just just alone the evil intent of spiritual moral agents because God could have and would have stopped this. It wasn't divine cause and effect. It wasn't discipline for him. It was, according to Scripture, the promotion of God's glory. Another example, I'll give you a couple more. How about 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 through 10? Paul called it his thorn in the flesh. Didn't feel good. Thorn in the flesh. That wasn't because he was in sin. It was all to promote God's glory. 
in his life. Because in weakness, God's power is perfected. There is that principle of suffering inflicted for the glory of God. Or how about this one? This one would blow your mind. Um, it's in two places in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10, and Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10, and Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8. It says, it, is, it was fitting that God the Father, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of our salvation perfect through suffering. He was doing something to him through the refining work of suffering. Or Hebrews 5, 8, although he was a son, Christ learned obedience from what he suffered. Right? Now, he never sinned, but he learned to handle the difficulties of his temptations early in his life through suffering. The promotion of the glory of God. All right. Now, I know that leaves us with some questions that we will deal with next week. While most people are going to be shopping and out decorating their houses, we're going to be here, Lord willing, next week dealing with the decrees of God. We will learn to use the word supralapsarianism and infralapsarianism. How fun will that be next week? For this week, theodicy. Let's pray. God, thank you for this reminder that you have a good plan, that you're working in spite of the awful, rotten sin that has come in this grace period where you let volitional agents do what they want to do, and you have inflicted phase one of your judgment in natural evil, and there's a lot of other nuances of why evil comes to be and suffering comes to be, which we've seen some, some examples of that here at the end of this lecture. But God, help us to recognize that when all is said and done and you work your plan of redemption, your plan of grace, that you will wipe away all evil, you will set aside all that is wrong, you will establish a kingdom where righteousness dwells, as Peter put it, and there, a home of righteousness, and there will be for us no more evil, no more sin, no more suffering, no mourning, no crying, no death, no pain, and you will live among us. You will sit enthroned in the center of the new Jerusalem, and we will celebrate your grace. People that should deserve to be expunged and expelled from the universe instead will be the objects of your love. We are now problem is we still live in a sinful fallen world in sinful unredeemed bodies but we look forward one day groaning like the world that just doesn't work right in bodies that just don't work right we groan within ourselves waiting in eager anticipation for the redemption and the presentation and the exaltation of the sons of the living god so thank you god for this hope we pray we would live this out in spite of the pain and difficulty and corruption and sin and crime in our world and that we would look forward to the day when you reign and we pull as many people as possible onto this boat, into this bus, onto this train and say that we want them to be a part of this. I know it's your will, God, that people would get to a place of repentance in your forbearance and patience. You want them in this thing called the body of Christ. So I pray we'd be active as a church. Let us reap a great harvest here in South Orange County for your namesake. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.